Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, Cole Hatter shares riveting lessons about life and death from his time as a firefighter, a tragic car accident that took two of his closest friends, and how we start to find meaning in our losses. Cole, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. 
Bro, thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. Yeah, it is my pleasure. Uh, you know, you and I met through our mutual friend, Wes Chapman, who was a former guest here on Unmistakable Creative and by all accounts, an absolutely riveting guest. So I figured if anybody uh, he knew uh, was referred to the show, they'd be phenomenal. So on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your journey, your story, your background, and how that has led you to everything that you're up to in the world? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start off with the 10,000-foot approach, and then you let me know what you'd like me to talk more about. As a young man growing up in about eighth grade, I looked at, you know, for the first time what I wanted to start doing in my life. What was I, 12, 13 years old at that age, and decided that I wanted to do something where I could help people. I just kind of have a philanthropic heart and uh, wanted to find a career where I would see a measurable difference with my work. So I looked at joining the military. I looked at being a doctor. I was just afraid of going to that much school. And after surveying my options of, of getting that, you know, intangible, how do I get paid to help people? I decided to be a firefighter. It was just a perfect fit for me to get paid money to play with fire and save lives was, uh -huh. was a perfect fit. So, uh, started doing that part-time around high school classes, you know, taking my EMT certificates, et cetera, graduated high school, went straight into the academy and started living my dream life as a firefighter. Uh, did that for a bit until I got into a car accident myself where I was ejected out of the car going about 80 miles an hour on the freeway. And, uh, you know, when you're going 80 on the freeway and fly out of a car, you, uh, most, most of the time don't get to live to talk about it and, uh, definitely leave some skin on the pavement. So that ended up putting me in a wheelchair for, for a couple of months and ended that career. Uh, about two months later was in a second accident that almost killed me as well. So two accidents, two months apart, back to back totally changed the course of my life. I, uh, you know, everything at that moment had been all marbles into firefighting. I had no expertise or even thought about doing anything else. I'm back at home with mom and dad because the accent was bad enough that, I mean, I couldn't even feed myself. So I had to be totally cared for. I'm at mom and dad's house and uh, the next door neighbors were a real estate husband, wife team. He was a broker. She was an agent. They were killing it. So I said, well, I could do real estate to uh, pay my bills until I find this this new avenue, right? Because a lot of people started suggesting it as soon as I got through the real critical healing phase and people knew I'd recover well enough to live a somewhat normal life. The advice started rolling into, hey, go get a degree, uh, go get a job. And you know, you're only 21. You got plenty of time left. Don't worry about it. But that didn't, that didn't align with what I wanted to create. I just didn't see the connection there. Although corporate America is a good fit for some, it wasn't my avenue. So I figured, you know what? I'll sell houses until, uh, until something pops up. Uh, I became a realtor and pretty quickly found out that being an investor is more profitable in a lot of aspects than just being a real estate agent listing properties. So I decided to be an investor instead, invest in some coaching, some of those education programs out there, and then took a whole ton of enthusiasm and strong will, went after it and did pretty well. Made a killing. I was 23 years old, having six-figure months, not knowing what to do with it. So like a lot of 23-year-olds with that type of money blew it all on Escalades, wakeboard boats, and surf trips. And uh, then all of a sudden, 2007 turned into 2008, and uh, the real estate market changed pretty dramatically. For any of your listeners that are in America, obviously know that our recession hit, real estate imploded, and all of a sudden, I didn't know how to make money anymore. And uh, I'm thankful for that period because it made me have to learn how to be an entrepreneur. Anyone can get rich in an up, you know, a roaring real estate climate and economy, but all of a sudden, I had to figure out how to make money when things were not so easy. And uh, for the next two or three years, I, I continued to do real estate. I started adding other things into my portfolio of activities and income generating activities, started a few businesses, sold one, and uh, fast forward to today, I still do real estate, uh, probably about, I don't know, 20% of what occupies my time, but the other 80% are all entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, I have a nonprofit that I run as well, and uh, 
you know, right now I'm just all about finding balance in life of, I was pursuing the riches at one point, uh, when I was down and out, I was pursuing purpose, trying to find meaning in life. And now I've kind of settled in this, this middle place of trying to have meaningful work that makes me profitable at the same time. So that back to what I originally wanted to do, I'm seeing a measurable difference in people's lives while I'm making a paycheck. And, uh, I just love telling that story and, and cruising around and helping inspire other people to make similar decisions. Mm. You know, I, I want to go back to the beginning of this, uh, which I have been known to do. And I want to ask you about what you think the formative or significant moments of your life were uh, growing up that would lead you to the decision to want to become a firefighter. Um, from the, um, from just the, I don't know, the tangible of, of I'll, <laughs> I can't remember how many times I got in trouble playing with fire. So I've always been drawn towards fire, right? All that. Well, we have that in common. Yeah, Except cool, I, yeah. I just enjoyed burning things because I thought it was cool as shit. Nice. And I can remember all the way back to elementary school. I don't know if this was real formative, but could have been. I remember, you know, the the fire department stopping by. And this had to be like second grade, one of my earliest memories of, of the fire department stopping by to teach us fire safety, right? They don't play with matches. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, yeah, whatever. But then, uh, you know, they hooked up the hose to the fire or the, um, the fire hydrant. And then we all took turns, you know, the firemen held it and we got to aim it and shoot the nozzle and stuff. So, you know, the lights, the sirens and playing around, it, it just always attracted me to that. And then, uh, when I was probably about 10 years old, my sister was dating a man who was uh, working at a fire department. So I got to do the tour and that more solidified my interest. And then on the altruistic, uh, my parents and I were, are pretty involved in our church. Um, you know, growing up as a young man, I kind of just went cause I had to. Right. And, uh, I saw a lot of the difference that, that my parents got to make volunteering and going on these these day trips or even weekend trips down to Mexico building a house. And something planted a seed young in me where where here I am growing up, you know, middle class of America in Orange County, California, which by all means is probably the top 1% of the world, but in America, <laughs> in, the, in the middle class. And uh, so I, I wasn't growing up on private jets or BMWs or Mercedes. You know, my parents had Fords and Chevys, et cetera. But going down to Mexico and seeing people who were just excited to have a meal that day planted a seed in me young. And so that's something I can definitely thank my parents for of, of exposing me to the realities of outside of what our news, media, TV, and Orange County would present to me and mm-hmm. seeing a more well-rounded th- approach or, or idea of what is in the world. And so something about maybe those two instances made me say, you know what, I'm going to help save lives uh, by playing with fire and being a firefighter. And so, you know, when when I finally had to start making career decisions, uh, I guess about, you know, junior high school of, of what I wanted to do, I think those those several experiences like that made me want to help people, but not necessarily be someone that traveled the world to do it in, in a nonprofit aspect, like go join, you know, uh, I don't know, the Peace Corps or something. But uh, of, of being a firefighter here so I could save lives, you know, in my own city and, and have a family and, and still live in Orange County, surf every day and do the things I find important. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is something in particular about the way that you were raised and the people that you are raised around that would make you recognize those as moments of significance? Or do you only see them as moments of significance in retrospect now that I'm asking you about it? You know, I would say both. I think the fire department, I don't even I couldn't even. It's funny that you asked that because. I probably haven't even remembered that. I don't know much more than five times since that experience. So that's probably more in retrospect. But to to the other end of that, the the altruistic part of, of wanting to make a difference, I think is 100% a result of being raised by parents who walk that walk and don't just say, hey, grow up and be a good person, but have you know dragged me along with them to, to do what they were up to in the world. 
And uh, as a young person growing up, while I was still malleable of, of who I would become, of, of getting that feeling of seeing me making a difference in someone else's life, you know, even if it was simple as growing up and playing soccer with these homeless, you know, Mexican kids while my parents were off building them a home, I, I think both, right? In retrospect, the fire department thing was, I don't know, maybe happenstance, but definitely my desire and how I'm now wired of getting my biggest thrills in life, making an impact in other people's lives in all aspects, not just building homeless people homes, but in everything I do. Uh, I think absolutely it was a seed that was planted by my parents' belief and then you know, by them surrounding me with these activities of going down with 75 volunteers to do something where everyone has the same mindset definitely put an impression on me that has lasted you know, for all my life. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about your time as a firefighter. One, because I've never gotten to interview a firefighter before, and I'm just so morbidly curious about uh, what kinds of things uh, and life lessons you've learned from your time as a firefighter that have shaped and influenced the way you see the world, the way you live, uh, and the way you deal with people. I mean, what are the things that have come from that that have made it into the work that you do today? And sure. So you are although- as a person. Yeah, although that career was short-lived, I definitely, you know, learned a lot while I was there. Um, obviously, unfortunately, like probably any environment, there's a lot of politics there. So you got to mind your P's and Q's. And especially being the rookie, you do everything, right? Like polishing everyone else's boots, bringing the captain his paper and coffee, right? Just total, total lesson of humility in a good way, right? Like, uh, you know, I was never hazed or put in an uncomfortable position, but you earn your keep. And that's just part of being anything, right? You're the grunt. And so... Uh, being the star football player and, you know, the, the guy in high school that Mr. Popular and, and being a quote unquote somebody in that social scene to then enter the fire department where I'm literally scrubbing toilets uh, was, was a great lesson for humility. Uh-huh. I think that uh, is something that has resonated in, in the rest of the areas of my life. Uh, another thing is, is the aspect of the job is very systemized. Uh, everything about the fire department is systematic so that if I'm on C shift, but pick up a, you know, pick up a shift with B shift to put in some OT overtime. Uh, those might be men that I see occasionally, yet we speak the same language, do the same things, and follow the same format so that we're interchangeable. You know, the military, what better example than systems than that? And to a degree, the, the fire department's militaristic in their systems, their training, their processes of how things happen to make sure that while we're in a fire, that we're all safe, right? I mean, it's from the aspect of, of what we do, it might not look as regimented as it is, but when you are in a house where you yourself are putting your life in risk, everything has to have pre-thought out, drilled, and practiced a million times for the one time you get to apply it. And that's how we keep ourselves safe, keep each other safe, and save lives. So from everything, from the medical aspect, obviously that's talking about fire, but from the medical aspect, you know, you, you're using power tools. You're, you're working in an accident where someone could be bleeding out and has moments to live and working together as a team. And although there are four or if multiple units respond, 15 of us, we are our one unit working. That, that systematic approach of doing the job is something that has been instrumental in my entrepreneurial career. You know, there's the book, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, which Mm -hmm. really um, focuses on that systematic approach of not working in your business, but on it. Uh, I, as a firefighter, lived that. And so I think that was something that that really impressed on my, you know, adult career that has nothing to do with firefighting anymore, but I can appreciate the power of systems. Hmm. Let me ask you this. What did you learn about life and people uh, not from the people that you worked with, but from the people that you've had to treat. Like, what kinds of perspectives did that give you on life and, and what actually matters when you get to see people in these moments in which potentially everything could be over? Uh, so, not to get cheesy, but 
when everything's going good, it's easy for us to draw prejudices to uh, stereotype, right? Like, oh, you're this color, I'm this color. You're this religion, I'm this religion. But when we're dying, we're all just people. And so one thing that's very interesting uh, is, you know, caring for the elderly, right? Because a lot of times they're probably 80% of our medical calls is grandpa has chest pain, etc. But when someone is literally their life is in your hands and you following the training you have, you don't care who they pray to or whether they pray at all. You don't care what their beliefs are, who they voted for, right? Like, I mean, obviously we're, we're gearing up. It's 2015 now. We're gearing up for elections in 2016. And I don't know about your newsfeed and Facebook, but all of mine is, oh, this person's no good and this person, you know, it's just, ugh. but when we're dying, none of that stuff really matters. So, you know, one perspective that, that working with my patients has taught me is that for whatever reason, we're influenced to have our beliefs and rightfully so. And, and we, we hold on strong to those. But at the end of the day, it's all totally meaningless, right? Like it, it really is meaningless. And when things and events like 9-11 happened, you know, the following year or two, we were all just Americans. We weren't Republicans or Democrats. We weren't black or white. We weren't, you know, man or woman. We were, we were united, right? United we stand. You remember all the t-shirts and the logos. And then sadly, life gets back in the way and it kind of fades away. But, you know, one, one benefit of being a firefighter who's continually working with patients is just that, that you don't care who you see, you're there to save their life regardless. And that level of humanity, which is a common denominator, I've seen in the real world too, right? With my philanthropic trips, with my nonprofit, traveling internationally, you know, I go to countries where I don't even speak the language of the person I'm helping. And in any other context, me and that person will have never met, but I can make a difference in their life. And so I think that's one great aspect that my, my, um, I guess patients, if you will, or, or the people who I was able to come and help and serve as a firefighter. That's one huge lesson they taught me. Hmm. You think that perspective and that ability to view the common humanity between all people is something that be, can be cultivated without having had the experience you've had of being exposed to people uh, dying in your arms? And if so, how? You know, I think it's difficult. Unfortunately, I'm not one of those naysayers or one of those whatever. But unfortunately, I think our, our media is very propagated to be very divisive. And I think that if you just generally watch TV, uh, depending on what channel you're on, they're, they're going to be putting beliefs or thoughts or, or uh, I don't know, mindsets around demographics or people, even if it's subconsciously and just the tone or the, or the, the way they're phrasing their conversation. So I think it's possible, but I think you're going to have to do a lot of work. I think you're really going to have to censor who you listen to. They say that the mind is the most fertile soil in the world. Whatever you plant will grow. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the, the social norm are, are seeds that would plant a degree of skepticism or, you know, whatever towards, towards a person. I think that, again, the, the drama or the, the, I don't know, the, the huge emotional rush that you're going through when, when you're working on someone, and I, I can't explain it in easy words, but, but that taking you out of your normal reality and where nothing matters, you're not thinking about politics is an easier way to do it. But if you just consciously decide one day, hey, you know what? I want to have that belief that we're all people and that we should love each other. I know people that do that. I, I have some close friends. Um, but just being able to flip a switch, I think it's possible, but it's certainly going to take a lot of work. You're going to have to cut things out of your life, add new things in your life, and be diligent, like losing weight, right? You, you don't go to the gym two times. It's going to have to be a lifestyle of dieting, exercising, and beliefs around your body to lose weight. The same is true with viewing people for people and not for labels. Hmm. Wow. Uh, well, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about experiencing an accident that effectively ends a career that it sounds like was really a large part of your identity for such a long time. Sure. And 
Uh, I'm really interested in a couple of different things. One is how you wrestle with the loss of identity uh, when you know that this career that has been such a huge part of yours is over. Uh, and then, of course, you know how you maintain hope during that period. I mean, like from what I hear about people who end up in wheelchairs, often the chance of them never walking again is quite high. Sure. Uh, and I'd love to hear about managing your psychology through all of this. So in that aspect, I knew I would walk again. I had a bruised spinal column, but not uh, damaged beyond healing. So mm-hmm. it was just a matter of my, it was in my lower lumbar section, the swelling slowly subsiding day by day by day to where I, I couldn't move them at all to where, you know, I could get on crutches to where I was on a cane. So, so that wasn't the big part, but you know, part of what I, why I didn't share when I was giving you the overview is that in both accidents, uh, I lost two close people to me. So in the car accident, which was on September 10th, uh, my best friend in the world, like a brother to me, Steve, was driving. Our mutual best friend, Matt, was in the passenger seat. Steve and I were both ejected, and we were both rushed to the hospital in an ambulance. Or sorry, in a helicopter. Sorry. Uh, Matt went in the hospital in an ambulance, but Steve and I weren't doing well enough. They had to take us in a helicopter. And uh, both of us had injuries significant enough that whether we left or not was uncertain. I left. He didn't. So I think the bigger struggle uh, immediately after that accident was not so much that I lost my identity in firefighting. It was more the grief of losing Steve and the guilt of being a survivor when I wasn't supposed to. I had the ER surgeon right after I woke up from this all. I remember being in the hospital and him saying, hey, I'm the surgeon that worked on you. And just so you know, you shouldn't be alive. There's no medical explanation that my team and I that worked on you can come up with to why you're here. When we were working on you, we went through the routines. We went through the motions knowing that it probably would have been you know, meaningless in the end. You weren't going to make it, and somehow you did. And then he said, he pointed up, and he said, someone up there must have a plan for you. Fast forward 64 days. I had just gotten out of a wheelchair, and I'm on crutches now. It's now November 14th. And the other survivor of that car accident, Matt, and I decided to go out into the desert and ride dirt bikes because Matt had seen the degree of depression I was experiencing and the guilt of surviving. And so he wanted to help get me into my old routines. And I had just graduated out of a wheelchair on crutches. So the idea was not to ride aggressively. He would help me sit on my bike and then we would just like putt around. It was mostly to just get me away from living at home again with my parents and just dealing with the day-to-day grind of, again, uh, recovering physically from the trauma my body been through, recovering from the grief of losing Steve. And then really the thing that killed me the most was the guilt of being alive. Long story short, Matt and I both fell into a mine shaft uh, out in the desert. He and I were climbing up a hill. We both fell in. I was able to grab a bush on my way down and climb out. He was not. Uh, we The fire department was called. It took them six hours and the police chaplain pulled us aside. I mean, there was, there was, a huge, there was like 50 people by the time that this was all set up. The news and all of them had come. And six hours later, after we had fallen in, the police chaplain said he needs to speak to the family. He pulled us aside, a small group of us, and said, uh, you know, this is a mine shaft. Uh, it was an unmarked mine shaft. And the bad news is a lot of times when people fall in, we can never find them again because there's so many inlets. The good news is we found Matt. The bad news is this mine shaft is the deepest mine shaft I've ever seen in my career. It's 780 feet deep. Matt fell all the way to the bottom and he's dead. So I lost it. I almost fainted right there. Um, about an hour later, they said that they had, he had, they had retrieved his body. He was up, and I had to go say goodbye. And there I am staring at Matt, who was the only survivor of the accident with Steve 64 days ago. And so I went home to my parents' house, and I lost it. I mean, I don't even think I was thinking about firefighting or even caring about that. I had just lost the two most important people to me in my entire life in accidents that should have both killed me. They can't tell me why I medically survived the car accident. 
And if I would have been inches more to the right, I would not have been able to reach that bush. We both would have fallen in the hole all the way to the bottom. And so, um, you know, to, to the second part of your question, like what did I do to res- resolve the, the loss of identity? I, I got ugly for a while. I was taking medic, uh, heavy, heavy pain kills, pillars. Uh, let me try that again. Heavy pain killers. There we go. From my accident with Steve. And uh, I was still on them only two months later. So I started taking uh, a lot of them and drinking alcohol. I, I was not suicidal. I didn't want to kill myself, but I did not want to be alive. And I learned that if I took these, you know, Vicodins and hydrocoding heavy, heavy narcotic type painkillers and mixed it with hard alcohol, I would pass out at like four o'clock in the afternoon. I wouldn't wake up till like 11 a.m. the next day. And I would just, that's how I processed my grief was to not be awake for it. And then I had my big moment in. December 18th where I had hit rock bottom and you know started yelling out loud at God and yelling to Steve and Matt how sorry I was that I was alive and they weren't and yelling at God that he killed the wrong people I should be dead not them and he screwed it up and blah 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 right just just freaking out and then you know where I turned the corner which is where I think you know your question was going is realizing that I can't change the fact that they're gone and I'm here for whatever reason. I got picked to make it and they didn't. And that'll be an answer I'll never, or that'll be a question I'll never have answered in this life. But I do have time. And so I can choose to feel sorry for myself, take pills, drink booze, and waste the time I've been blessed to have a second and third chance at life. Or I can choose to flip a switch and do something meaningful with the time I have left to honor the Stephen, the lives of Stephen Matt because they only lived 21 years and they were robbed a chance to live a full life. So I need to live a life full enough for all three of us. And that was the aha moment I had December 18th. And that's was the pivotal changing moment for me. I didn't flip a switch and all of a sudden, you know, wipe the tears and feel better. This is something I still 11 years later deal with. Uh, it, you know, it's still a hard story to tell and a hard thing to relive. And I go to their grave and, you know, all the time. And it's nothing that I'll ever recover from. But I definitely was able to connect this tragedy to action. And then, um, you know, that has evolved into having a nonprofit and getting into entrepreneurship. And, uh, you know, I miss firefighting, of course. I miss the thrill, but uh, I know that everything happens for a reason. And I'm on a path now where I get to do everything I wanted to do in firefighting at a global level now. I wanted to be able to help my own city. And now through, you know, the income I make as an entrepreneur and the nonprofit I founded, I get to make a global difference. And so, uh, that's you know that, that's how I kind of processed it. It was f- missing the career of firefighting. Actually, I mean, I don't think I spent much time thinking about it. It was more, why am I alive? Why are they gone? And what am I going to do with the time I have left? Wow. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, one of the the questions I have for you is about the difference between post traumatic stress and post traumatic growth. And it seems like you are one of the people who has experienced post-traumatic growth. Uh, You know, I had a happiness researcher here a while back who said that there are certain people who experience post-traumatic growth. And I'm curious what you think it is that differentiates the people who experience post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic stress. You know, I don't know that I can speak for everyone, but I'll tell you exactly what it was for me. I went through post-traumatic stress for sure. So the motorcycle accident was November 14th. My aha was December 18th. So for about that 30-something day period, I, dude, I didn't even get out of bed. I mean, I was a wreck. And what shifted to post-traumatic growth, which I love that, whoever said that, cheers, um, was I I felt like Steve and Matt had been robbed for me. They didn't fight, you know, at that time we were over in Iraq, so it's not when this all happened. So they didn't, they weren't fighting a war for freedom. They didn't die for a cause. It was two stupid, careless accidents. The company that dug out all the silver in that mine shaft didn't put up a fence, didn't put up a sign. They were lazy and it took Matt. 
in the car accident, somebody cut us off, caused us to crash, and left the scene. They fled. They didn't stay. And so I had a lot of um, struggle with them being stolen from me and not having gone for a reason. And so what turned it into post-traumatic growth for me was I realized the only way I would ever be able to recover was to attach meaning to what I've gone through. That if it was meaningless and it was happenstance, now this doesn't, you know, obviously I, I have my faith and I've grown up in, the, in a faith community, but even for people that, you know, it's not God's plan or the universe, just if you believe that things happen just by happenstance, that's cool and you have the right to believe that. But something like this, I couldn't. I couldn't just accept the fact that Steve and Matt were gone and it was just a, a random chance encounter and that's the way life goes. I had to make it mean something to me. And so it, the only way I could get out of my severe depression was to go out there and push myself to do more than I ever thought I would, to live a different life than I ever had dreamed up I would, to use every talent, every skill, every ability, every opportunity, every single thing I had to make as big of an impact in the time that I had left, which is still not promised. You know, Maybe I'll get another 50 years. Maybe I've got less than that. But with the time, like I have this moment right now, and so you and I are having a conversation that hopefully to some of your listeners will make them look at life circumstances or experiences different. And so what, again, the the short answer of what turned it for me into post-traumatic growth was I said, if I sit here feeling sorry for myself, they died for nothing. But if I go out there and change the world for them, they at least died for something. And that was the first step in my healing. So I literally couldn't stomach doing nothing at all. I had to go out there and grow because when I get to see them face to face again, I want to say, hey, guys, I have no idea why why I made it and you guys didn't, but look what I did for you with the time I had left. And hopefully when that moment comes, we can look back over my life experience and see thousands of lives that have been changed. And I could say that one was for you guys. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know, one of the things that has always interested me is that it seems that we need some sort of a crisis or a catalyst for us to realize that life is short and that it could be over at any moment. And I feel like people don't really get that until they go through something like what you have. And I'm wondering, is it possible to get it without going through what you've gone through? And if so, how? You know, I get this question asked a lot. And this is kind of the same principle of what you asked earlier, right? Can we look at people as all humanity and not as, you know, it, it sure. probably takes an event, right? It's, 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 I'm going to just be totally transparent. I only live one life, the one of having a traumatic event. So I can't speak for those that have had a pretty mundane or, or at least, you know, an exciting life, but nothing where you've almost died and fallen into holes and stuff. But here's what I know. And here's what I've helped people who want to live. I guess you'd call it a life of purpose, even though obviously purpose is a very popular term right now in our space, but of living life that matters is kind of what I would say Yeah. Um, without having to almost die first to appreciate the moments you have. And it all comes down to motivation. And if you want to truly talk about what motivation feels like, like motivation is a term that explains what, 
well, I'd say a feeling and it's a feeling of urgency. If like, if you really had to get down to it, why are you motivated to do anything? Like you're sitting on the couch, you're chilling. Oh, it's time to go to the gym. Well, why do you get motivated to get up? Cause there's a sense of urgency about being there and getting the results. So I think people need to find urgency in their life. That's what it is. And I have that sense of urgency because every minute I'm on right now is borrowed. But what about the people who haven't almost died two times in two months? And by the way, those are just a few. I have a couple more stories just like that. And so for people that have almost died a bunch like me, uh, I have a greater sense of urgency with how I spend my time because I know what it feels like to be looked in the eyes by a doctor that said, oh, I was your surgeon and I thought you were going to die. Somehow you made it and I didn't do it. It's just random luck, right? So, Or someone up there must have a plan for you. So here's for somebody who's listening that might not have these life-altering experiences, what you need to do. You need to, there's two places that urgency comes from. And so since I've been asked this so many times, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, One place I'm going to say that urgency comes from, there's two places. The first is um, natural urgency. And so let me explain this. I have a two and a half year old baby girl, or I guess she's not a baby anymore, but we still call her baby girl. And as a father, I want to protect her. And let's just say that uh, a ball is rolling down my driveway and I'm in the garage talking to the most important person in the world in a life-changing conversation. It's the most riveting conversation I've had in my entire life. I don't want to leave it for anything. Yet in the corner of my eye, I see a ball rolling down my driveway, my daughter chasing it and a car coming down the street. It does not matter how important or meaningful that conversation was. I will stop talking to that person and sprint to grab my daughter before she enters the street where that car can harm her or even kill her. That's called natural urgency. Every single one of us have that ability of seeing something that requires immediate action and regardless of what else is occupying our time, it becomes paramount and we do it. And for me, almost dying a few times has kind of blanketed that over my whole life. So there's not a lot we can do for natural urgency other than having situations arise which create an urgent matter, like save my daughter's life. But then there's another part of urgency and I call it manufactured urgency. And manufactured urgency is something we each can do and we've all done it. And the way I explain it so that it's most tangible for all the listeners is we all at some point or at some level have been educated and and been in class. And some people are better students than I am, but I might get the, uh, the project assigned the first day of the semester that's due the last day of the semester. And guess when I'd get around to doing it? the night before it's due, right? I had four months to do it, but for whatever reason, the day before it's due is when I finally get around to starting. Now, that evening, I could get offers to go to a football game, to go surfing, to go to a concert, to go to whatever I would rather be at, but I know that if I don't do this project, I'll fail the class. So I need to manufacture a sense of urgency that regardless of the opportunity, regardless of how much fun I'm about to want to go and have, I must make that paramount and I must have an urgent sense about getting it done. Otherwise, the repercussions are negative enough that it's, you know, it's to some degree intolerable. And so we are all capable of doing that. And again, that might be a lame example. I'm just trying to think of one that's broad enough that people can understand what I'm talking about. We, We can all manufacture urgency around, hey, I need to take this action because the alternative, if I don't, is more painful than doing it, right? If I say no, that result will be more painful than if I say yes and do it. And so what people need to do in the areas of their life that they want to see change is they need to manufacture urgency around that. And they need to, although nothing comes easy and anything worth having takes effort, they need to create a scenario in their mind where lack of action is more painful than the action it takes for change. And I call that manufactured urgency. 
And for individuals who want to live their life in a more meaningful way and don't want to just tiptoe to their grave and arrive safely, which is a whole nother thing I can go on and on about, right? I think the world has lied to us about what's important and, and people get stuck in this comfort level of just tiptoeing to life, you know, tiptoeing through life and arriving at their grave safely, not mattering and unnoticed by anyone. That's sad. So you need to create a, a sense of urgency around the time you have and say, okay, today, if I do you know, if I sit on the couch, if I watch some football games, drink some beer and hang out, that's enjoyable. But what if I did this other thing I've you know, procrastinated about instead? And if you can manufacture that urgency around it, that the lack of action is worse. However, you need to do that. I make up movies in my mind. Um, and this is the last thing and I'll wrap this up to the gym. I don't always feel like going to the gym. And some days I'll, you know, the little voice in my head will start talking me out of it. But I'll make unrealistic movies in my mind. I'll say, okay, I got a two and a half year old daughter. And if I don't go to the gym now, I'm going to create a habit of missing the gym where I'm going to become so morbidly obese, I can't even play with my daughter anymore. I can't even enjoy her. And then I'm setting an example for her lifestyle to follow. Now, is that true? Probably not. I'm just missing the gym. But I'll create these, these scenarios that are so painful that it's like, all right, fine, I'll go to the gym. And I mean, that's, that's how you have to do it. You either have a natural urgency, like I have because I've almost died. Or all of us are capable of creating manufactured urgency. And uh, the way to do that is to, again, find more pain in staying the same than the pain of change. Huh. Wow. Uh, that was really, really profound. I, I want to shift gears a little bit. And cool. I want to ask you some, about something that has been uh, top of mind to me for some reason, mainly because I think we've just had guests here who happen to have... Uh, this is part of their stories. You know, I just had Donald Miller here, uh, and I just had Rob Bell, who's a mega pastor. Uh, you've mentioned faith in God throughout our conversation. Uh, and I'm just really interested, uh, from a personal perspective, to hear about how religion and spirituality have impacted your life and the way you live it. And I'm curious if being sort of uh, forced to confront mortality has had an impact on your faith in God. Totally has. So, you know, brief summarization of, of my faith in God. I grew up in a Christian home. So as long as I can remember all the way back through childhood, I was in, you know, the daycare or not the daycare. What is it? The um, Sunday school classes and then, you know, the junior high classes, high school, etc. And I would say I had a lukewarm faith at best. It was more, hey, my parents are going and if I don't go, I get in trouble. So I'll go too. And uh, you know, I made friendships with the other kids in church, so I looked forward to it for the social outing, right, more than what anybody had to say about God. I graduated high school and became my quote-unquote own man. Um, I didn't mention that when I was firefighting, I actually moved to Seattle, Washington to do that. And growing up in Orange County and moving 1,800 miles away, I now govern my own decisions. And I would really only hit church when it was convenient, right? If I, if I hadn't partied too hard on a Saturday night and felt like waking up at 8.30 a.m. to be at 9 o'clock church, I'd do it. If, if I didn't feel like going, I wouldn't. And, and that was really it, that uh, I wasn't actively really following my faith, yet at the same time, having grown up with it, it really rooted my decisions, right? Um, like all of us have as teens growing up, the, the peer pressures of drugs and things along that I, I never was tempted by because I think of my faith. I did drink a lot. I got in trouble for the first time, 15 years old. We were skateboarding. Where we weren't supposed to. A cop pulled us over to yell at us for skateboarding. And I happened to have a fifth of tequila in my backpack, right? So uh, I'm not going to say I didn't drink illegally and underage, but I never, ever touched a drug, wanted to do anything with it. And I think that was really rooted in my faith that I just didn't. But other than that, you know, I wasn't the guy that's like, oh, you're having a hard day. Let me pray for you. Or, oh, do you know what the Bible says about that? It was not part of my deal. When I almost died, things started shifting for me. And 
you know, I started reflecting back on everything I'd learned in faith. And, uh, you know, to, the more of the story is when I was really bad, like when I was still in a wheelchair and, you know, I didn't get into all my injuries, but my face was so smashed shut. They didn't even know if I still had my eye or not on the, in my right eye uh, because they couldn't see it because all of the swelling and, and bruising and, and brokenness. So the CAT scan showed the eyeball was in there. And then when my eye opened, it was blind for six months. So like I was really in a wreck. And the only thing I, I couldn't work, I couldn't hang out with friends. I couldn't do anything. The only thing I could do was go to church. Literally, the the youth pastor of my church, uh, his name's Brian, and he, and he he played an instrumental role in my life because I couldn't do anything else. He would drive my parents' house, pick me up, throw my wheelchair in the car, and just take me to church because it's the only social outing I had. And then something changed forever. Uh, a friend of mine named Chris, who's a really cool guy, he's tatted head to toe. He's got sleeve tattoos. He's wearing Converse and jeans and like, you know, looks like a surf bum just like me, who's my age. Uh, He was 21 at the time. He walked up to me and he said, hey, I know you don't know who I am, but I know who you are. I know your story and I've been praying for you. And it almost knocked me down because I was like, what the heck? Someone my age who's cool prayed for me? Like that should be a pastor thing to say or or an old bald man or woman or something, maybe not bald woman, but like, you know, an, an elder in the church should say that. A dude that looks like me, talks like me, his blasted head to toe and tattoos and looks like he just got done surfing, who doesn't even know who I am, prayed for me. So that's when I was like, okay, you know, maybe there's more to this faith thing than I thought. And I am by no, no means a quote unquote Bible thumper. I don't judge people. You know, I have some really, really strong friendships with people who unfortunately in the Christian community are ostracized because I don't think that that's what faith is, is to judge. I think faith is to love. And, uh, you know, for me, how I, how I now practice it and why it became important was number one, after the accidents uh, and a touch with death and that question of mortality really made me reevaluate the decisions I was making and how I was choosing to spend my time. Do I really need to be partying and getting drunk on Saturday night, missing church, or maybe should I make church more of a, of a priority? Number two, how heavy my church family laid on me after that accident, since it was the only thing I could do was go to church or sit on my parents' couch bleeding still, like in my bandages and sutures. Uh, them laying on me and loving me was big. But the biggest probably shift was seeing a peer of mine who by all means was quote-unquote cool praying for me, even though he had no idea who I was, he had just heard my story was really where I was like, whoa, like cool people actually believe in God too. And and that's where I started investing in my faith more. And now I make it a priority to, you know, do the things of my faith, right? I'm not perfect. I still cuss. I, I still, uh, you know, do things that, uh, you know, the bracelet, what would Jesus do <laughs> would probably, <laughs> probably be the exact opposite. I'm, I'm in no way perfect, but you know, um, I just, I just read the gospels and I, I see, what you know, people of, of that time, the, the apostles and Jesus and all of them were doing. And I just try to occupy my time doing stuff like that, not judging, loving, and leading by example. And uh, that lifestyle, I think, is a better one, right? Uh, and, you know, we were talking about labels earlier and just loving each other as humans and not as, you know, you're Muslim, you're a Christian, you're a Buddhist, you're this, or you're black, you're white, you're Asian, you're Hispanic. Like, just looking at, at, at loving people, you know, as people. Unfortunately, there are just those characters in each religion that act like total idiots Mm -hmm. that create blankets for everyone, right? There's obviously at the time of recording this uh, podcast in the United States of America, um, gay marriage has just become federally legalized uh, a few weeks ago. And that's a huge hot topic. And well, gosh, darn it. Wouldn't she know it? There are these Christians out there holding signs with, with um, homophobic slurs and saying, you're going to burn in hell and this and that. Now Christians are bad. And it's like, dude, nowhere in the Bible does anyone act like that. 
right? What we should do is love people and accept them unconditionally and lead by example. So I'm one of those guys that says, hey, you're gay, awesome. Some of my closest friends in the world are awesome. I'm no better than you because although I am married to a woman and heterosexual, I cuss and I do this and, you know, I whatever. I freaking probably... I mean, I'm, I don't need to go through my whole list of stuff I can improve <laughs> on, but there's stuff that I suck at that you might be more exemplary than I am. And so knowing that we all are have our areas, I'm not here to judge. I know what my, my, you know, what my faith says about that, but you are an amazing human being, and I love you for who you are as a person, and, and that's how I act out now in my faith. And I just think it's a better way of living, and, and it's too bad that you know there are certain characters, like I said, that act like complete idiots, and then now the label's put on all people of that demographic, of that race, of that religion, that they're all feeling and thinking the same way, and, and you know, I don't think that that's, that's what it's about. So that's why my faith has become such an important part for me of my life, and now that I'm a, a father of a two-year and a two-and-a-half-year-old, I need to lead that example to her as well. So um, you know, that's, I guess that's my response of how I got into my faith and how I, how I walk my faith out now is... And I'm not here to judge you. I'm just here to love you, whoever you are, and try to lead by example in my life to point you in the right direction. You know, I I, I really appreciate all of this because, uh, you know, it's funny. I saw a therapist for a couple of months uh, when I was just going through some personal stuff, and one of the the sort of questions that came up was, you know, in all of this and dealing with depression and anxiety, he said, "Have you ever?" like thought about religion. I said, no, I actually have questioned the existence of God. <laughs> right. And, but you know, the, the reason I brought that up is the more that I have conversations with you, you know, the chat that I had with Donald Miller, the conversation I had with Rob Bell, I keep, you know, I, up until this moment, I have seen religion as a way to discipline and control people. But when I hear the conversations I have with you guys, I'm like, wow, each of these people has talked about religion as the path to a more meaningful life. Totally. And that's really all it's about. It doesn't matter what the religion is. Like, you know, it's funny because I talked to Rob Bell. I said, my big gripe with religion is that it's time consuming and boring. And Rob said that's the big thing that he's been trying to basically, you know, undo by making the entire experience of going to a church far more engaging. But I mean, the bigger point being that when I hear this conversation, when I hear the one that I had with Donald Miller, when I I think back to the conversation I had with Rob Bell, even one of our friends who's our our chief growth, uh, you know, person on our team said, he said, you know what? I'm not a fan of religion or mega pastors, but he said that was a fascinating interview. Totally. So uh, can, I, can I say something about that? Real yeah, quick? absolutely. I hate religion. Personally, I think religion is, is man's interpretation of you know, what, what the Bible or, or in other books. You know? So as a Christian, we, we read the Bible, but other books have the Quran or the whatever. So I think the religious aspects are man-created and man-induced. Uh, I think what it's supposed to be is relation. And so... When you develop a relationship with who you believe your creator is, right? Because you've questioned, well, who is God, right? And I'm not here to tell you what you should or shouldn't believe, right? That's obviously not the context of this conversation. I have my beliefs, and I just try to have a relationship. And so religion is time-consuming. It's a bunch of do's and do nots, and it's a bunch of just man-made routines and uh, practices, which, you know— if you know, not to get super religious, but if you have read the Bible, you know the Gospels that follow the life of Jesus. He wasn't. He was like yelling at the religious people of the time, called the Pharisees, being like, "Dude, you guys have it all wrong. Like, you've made a thousand rules in addition to the Ten Commandments. Like, you're not even allowed to itch your, you know, your freaking butt on the Sabbath because that's work. Like, who? What are you guys doing? So, like, you know, if you've ever read it, and I'm not here to force my religion on anybody, but if you read the stories of Jesus, basically all he did was like question the status quo of what religion had become and use these religious iconic people of their time as a as an example of what not to do like hey here's like the holiest people but they're totally freaking blowing it because they've gotten sidetracked with religion 
And they're not even following God anymore. They're following their own rules of what they think their own personal interpretation of God is. And it's ridiculous. So, you know, this is the last thing I'm going to say about this. And we can go as deep as you want. But, you know, here's for me. And let me just disclaim if there's any, you know, Christian pastors out there that are just covering their ears right now because I'm blaspheming. I apologize. But for me being just, you know, someone who's grown up in the church and that's it and hasn't taken a single Bible class in my whole life, here's what I do at the end of the day. You know, the word Christian, which is, again, the religion I am, there's the root and the suffix. I-A-N means to be of. Christ is Christ. So Christian means to be of Christ. So if we want a compass or a northern star of what we should do, just look at what Christ did in the four books of the Bible that document his life and what he did in his ministry, those three years he was cruising around healing people. And all you see him doing is talking to the religious people about how they've screwed up what's supposed to be pure and holy, and they've made it a bunch of man-made rules and practices that is time-consuming, burdensome, and bogus. You see him talking to them about trying to shift it and stop doing that. And then you see him going to the most controversial people of that time, the prostitutes, the the tax collectors, the people in that era were like the quote-unquote bad people, and he just freaking loved on them. Like if, if, if he was here today... I bet you he would go to abortion clinics and just love on those women. And I bet you he would go to gay rallies and just love on, you know, the LBG, LBGT community. And I bet you he'd go to these, you know, super religious people and smack them in the back of the head and saying, stop screwing this whole thing up. So that's my belief. And I think that's a lot of what Rob Bell's message is as well. I heard that podcast. And uh, so, so when you say, you know, what is religion? Personally, I try to be as anti-religious. I don't want to say anti, but I try not to be religious Mm-hmm. I just try to see the example of what, you know, Jesus did with this time here and knowing that that's what I'm supposed to be of, you know, a Christian is to be of Christ. I just try to freaking love people unconditionally. And if things start to get too religious, I'm out. I just, I don't want to get into these man-made routines. So, you know, if that helps with you and in, in your question of, you know, the existence of God, I would say steer clear of religion and look more for relation. And, uh, you know, you can find that in, in, the, in the books or continue to have conversations with people like Rob Bell, who's a freaking rock star. Awesome. Wow. Uh, this has been a really, really cool conversation. Uh, really eye-opening, insightful, and, and thought-provoking. And given that Wes referred you, I kind of figured it would be. So I want to finish with uh, one last question, which is how we finish all our interviews uh, here at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, one, individuality, right? We, we all are wired to be unique, and I think we all have a purpose, I really do. I, I think that um, without, so so there's two questions. There's the number one, why are we here as people? What is the purpose of humanity? And now that I've talked so much about my faith, you know my strong beliefs around that. But without that, right, because you obviously and other people can have different beliefs. Let's take one step down. Regardless of why we think we as people exist and why we're here, let's just all agree we are here, okay? So then the next question is, what should we occupy our time doing? Is it really what the world has told us of trying to become more successful make more money to buy ourselves more stuff every single year to try to get more square footage in a home, a nicer car, a bigger paycheck, and put our kids to the best education money could buy so that when our day comes to whatever people believe happens next, we look back on a life of saying, well, gee, I was sure comfortable and I sure did well financially and I sure provided for my family. Now, I don't say that to condemn that. That's important. But if you think that's the whole purpose for humanity, man, you're missing it. So what unmistakable means to me is finding a way that you can shake things up and within your skill sets and your life experiences because we're all born good at things, we're all taught things, and then we all go through things. That formula is unique to you. 
I do things that a million people do. And I'm not the only one that's gone through a car accident where people have lost. But my life experiences mixed with what I was born with and then who I've learned from does put me in a unique position. And I think being unmistakable is breaking out of the status quo of this BS of just, oh, let me make more money and be more comfortable. Whoever said life was about comfort? I think being unmistakable is when you when you are when people put you next to other people, you stand out because you're doing things that matter, that you were born to do, that resonate deeply within your gifts, what you've been taught, and what you've gone through, and that you don't fit in in the crowd of just getting yourself stuff and more comfortable, but that when you leave a room, when you leave a conversation, or when you leave an experience, you've changed and shifted everyone who was touched by your being there, and then you leave unmistakable. That's what I think it is. Wow. Well, Cole, this has been uh, awesome. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your journey and your insights with our listeners at The Unmistakable Creative. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.